Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to Forest Park. Uh, for some of you, if this is your first time here, uh, we want to welcome you. There is a connection card in the seat in front of you. If you can please fill that out. Uh, and then after the service, you can just drop it off in the drop boxes all on your way out. And all we want to do is just reach out and see how we can uh, pray for you and minister to you. Um, if you've brought your Thanksgiving baskets, uh, thank you so much for doing that. They are due today. And then also mark your calendar uh, for for December 5th. Um, December 5th at 6 o'clock is our next member gathering. What happens at member gathering is a time for us as covenant members, as a family, come together to, to celebrate and reflect all uh, that God has done and, and even ask the Lord to do uh, in, in before us. And so uh, this specific one, we're going to talk about our budget, the resources that the Lord has blessed us and how we've used those resources and also how we're planning to use those resources for the upcoming year of 2022. And so mark your calendars. Please make sure if you're a covenant member, uh, participate in that. But if you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to John. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 4, uh, verse 43, as we're continuing our series through the Gospel of John. Now, in the Gospel of John, uh, John is trying to show us that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God. And the way he does it is by showing us how Jesus revealed his glory and how Jesus received glory from the Father. And the reason why he's trying to show us this is not to show us how smart he is, but rather to invite us into belief so that we may have life in his name. Now, in the part of John, we are still in this, this area where Jesus is performing signs and wonders and revealing his glory. And so last week, we saw how salvation came to a Samaritan woman, and through her testimony, she would point to many to the one who saves. And the Samaritans uh, seem like the most unlikely converts, the most people, the, the seems like the, the people would, that would never believe in Jesus. And yet this encounter of this woman with Jesus and her testimony brought a whole village to come and see for themselves. And many believed not because of what this woman said, but rather they believed because of the very words of Jesus. The words of this woman only brought, that brought them to Jesus and kind of drew their attention to look to the man who told me everything I've ever did. And because of Jesus' words, they believed for they judged for herself that what she said was true, that Jesus is truly the savior of the world and so this was their conclusion after experiencing Jesus they're saying truly he is the savior of the world which is really profound words and, and we don't really know why they say it maybe they're overwhelmed by the fact that Jesus is not only just the Jewish Messiah but also their Messiah maybe it's because of their confidence that Jesus is going to extend salvation to the furthest reaches of the earth and so while all of this was going on, Jesus used this opportunity to teach his disciples about the urgency of this gospel and telling them, look, God is drawing men and women and children to himself and he's inviting them and he's inviting us to participate in what the Lord is doing. And Jesus was teaching his disciples that this work of God is like spiritual food that nourishes and satisfies the soul. This work is rewarding work and joyful work and he's called you to harvest and participate in what the Lord is doing. So that was last week, and so today we, we continue uh, through the book of John, and we get into this area that, that, that many people call in the Gospel of John the book of signs. 
So like if you look at the, the headings of, of some of these chapters, you're going to see uh, right above 46, you'll see the second sign. Uh, when Jesus turned the water into wine, you'll see the first sign. Uh, in chapter 5, you'll see the third sign. In other words, these were all signs, wonders and miracles that Jesus was performing. And through these signs and through these miracles and through these wonders, he was revealing his glory. However, as some saw Jesus performing all of these miracles, they only saw Jesus as a miracle worker. But he is so much more than that. For this man, Jesus not only performs signs and wonders, but what John is trying to tell us, he's more than that. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. And so in our text today, John invites us to believe, but to believe in who he is and not just what he can do for you. So let's look at our story in John chapter 4, verse 43. It says this, After two days he left there for Galilee. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And when they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed them because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they also had gone to the festival. So Jesus is, is coming from Samaria, uh, where he just enjoyed the first unopposed, open-hearted success. An entire village came to believe in him and to trust in his words. And now Jesus from Samaria is going to Galilee, where he's returning to his own people. Now that phrase is an important phrase because we said, remember when we studied the book of John, the very first chapter, chapter one is the prologue. It's kind of like the foyer that introduces the rest of the house. Within the foyer, there's multiple themes and, and you're kind of reading the themes but not really fully understanding the themes and what John is going to do, unpack those themes in the rest of his book. And so one of the themes that we picked up in the prologue is that Jesus returning to his own. So in John chapter 1 verse 11, it says this, He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And you're like, well, what does that mean? Well, John doesn't tell us. And remember, it's just the foyer. In the rest of the book, he's going to unpack this theme. And so in our text today, Jesus is now are going to unpack what it means when he returns to his own, his own will not receive him. And so when Jesus returns to his own people, Jesus himself declares that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And so the question we might have is, okay, well, what does that mean? Like, what does Jesus mean by that? He's returning to his own people, and then he turns around and declares, yeah, a prophet has no honor among his own people, his own country. Does it mean they won't welcome him? Does it mean they won't believe in him? They won't receive him? Does Galilee fall within that area? Because I thought like Jesus was from Nazareth. I thought he was born in Bethlehem. Like now it's Galilee. Is it Jerusalem? Is it Judea? Like what does that mean? And what makes it even more confusing, as John tells us, he makes it to Galilee. Jesus declares the prophet has no honor in his own country. We're thinking, okay, that means they're not going to accept them. But look at verse 45. It says this. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed them. They welcomed them. So we know it doesn't mean they, uh, they, they won't receive him, but in a sense they welcomed him, which makes this idea of a prophet has no honor in his own country even more confusing. However, 
if you read the rest of verse 45, why did they welcome him? Look at the rest of verse 45 of why they welcomed him. They welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festivals. For they also had gone to the festivals. In other words, the only reason why they welcomed him is because of all the miracles he has performed during the Passover in Jerusalem. So so if you're taking notes, here's the first thing we can learn, kind of like an insincere faith, the faith of the Galileans, if you're taking notes, is that the Galileans' faith were dependent on signs and miracles. Their faith was dependent on signs and miracles. That's the reason why they welcomed him. Because he performed signs and wonders. And this is the, kind of, the same kind of faith that John addresses for us in John chapter 2. Look at John chapter 2, verse 23 to 25. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. You're thinking, well, they believed. He performed signs. What more do you want? But John continues, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them. Since he knew them all, and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, in their faith, they really didn't care about Jesus and who he is. They just really cared about Jesus and what he can do for them. They saw Jesus as a miracle worker, and that's about it. And what we're going to see in the rest of our text, we're going to see Jesus rebuking that kind of faith, a faith that is dependent on only signs and miracles. And so here's Jesus who arrives on the scene, the one who transformed water into wine, who took the old purification ritual and put it to the side and instituted a new wedding banquet, a new ritual, a new cleansing. And he's announcing the dawning of the new messianic age and he continues to do the messianic work. He, even though he's not rightly believed in, he continues to perform miracles by bringing healing and snatching life from the brink of death. Look at look Look at verse, 40, uh, verse 46. It says this. He went, again in, he went again into Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. Then this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee. He went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son, since he was about to die. Jesus told him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So Jesus in Galilee returns to Cana where his ministry started, where he turned the water into wine. And from Capernaum, there was a royal official. And he was begging Jesus to come to, to, come to his house and to heal his son. And this royal official was desperate for hope. His son was ill, about to die. He's heard about Jesus and all the miracles that Jesus has performed. So in return, he's asking Jesus, come with me and heal my son. And in a sense, this royal official, just like the Galileans, is approaching Jesus out of desperation of need with really little thought to who Jesus actually is. As far as the royal official is concerned, the only thing he cares about is the healing of his son. The only thing he needs from Jesus is a miracle. He needs a sign and a wonder. His hope is in that. And look at 
Jesus' response. It's a little confusing. He says in verse 48, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. See, in a sense, what Jesus is doing, he's addressing this kind of faith that is dependent on signs and miracles. For Jesus has become an intriguing man performing all signs and miracles. And all what these people wanted to see is Jesus performing signs and wonders. The reason why they're welcoming him is because they want Jesus to perform signs and wonders. And when Jesus arrives, what happens? Hey, Jesus, we need you to do a miracle. We need you to perform a wonder. We need you to heal this man's son. And in a sense, Jesus rebukes this man. But he doesn't rebuke this man alone because notice who he addresses. Look at verse 40, 48. Does he just address this man? No, he says, unless you people, plural, which means he's addressing all of the Galileans. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. In other words, really the only thing you care about is what I can do for you. The signs and the wonders. That's not a sincere faith. That's not a faith that will endure. And when Jesus shows this man and showing the Galileans their flawed fundamental approach to Jesus because this is too much of a great focus on signs and wonders and miracles. We don't know what's going on in the man's heart or in his mind, but in his boldness, he pleads with the Lord again. Look at verse 49. He says, Sir... The official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Go, Jesus told them, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. So, so in verse 49, we can almost hear the desperation in this man's voice. Like, like he's pleading with Jesus. I, I know how I have insincere faith. I know I need you to perform a sign and a miracle and wonders. And I know all these other people, that's all they want from you. But if you don't do anything, if you don't come with me right now, my son is going to die. I need you to show up. And what does Jesus do? In compassion to this man's urgent plea, he says, go, your son will live. Now, I think two things that are very interesting Notice first, what was the man's request? The man's request to Jesus was, come with me to my house so that you can heal my son. That was the man's request. And what was Jesus' response? Did Jesus do exactly what the man requested and what the man asked? No, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, go and your son will live. So in a sense, this man had a certain expectation for Jesus to do a certain thing, and Jesus answers him without fulfilling his expectations or fulfilling his request. He does his own thing and says, go and your son will live. He doesn't go like the man requested, but rather he speaks a word. And notice what the, the royal official did. It said that the royal official believed what Jesus had said. He believed in the words of Jesus, and in obedience he left. 
So in a sense, we see the Galileans, their faith was dependent on signs and miracles. But now what we see, if you're taking notes, the royal official believed the words of Jesus. He believed that what Jesus said is true. And on that faith, he made his way home. He's demonstrating that unlike the Galileans, he's not simply interested in signs and wonders, but rather he believes in what Jesus said is true. Look at what happened on his way home in verse 51. It says this, While he was still going down, his servants met him, saying that his boy was alive. He asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told them, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. And so when the royal official was making his way back, he did not even make it all the way back when the servants met him with the good news. Your son is alive. Your son is going to be okay. He's recovering from his illness. And this royal official who who had already believed in what Jesus said realizes this is more than just a coincidence. For this man he was talking to was more than just a miracle worker. And so he asked, when did my son get better? And after putting two and two together, he realized the very time that when Jesus spoke the word, that's when his son got better and was recovered, realizing of who Jesus is. And again, what does the text tell us? Not only did he believe in Jesus' words, but it tells us again that he believed him and his whole household. And so despite the unlikelihood of the Galileans believing in Jesus because all they wanted was to see signs and wonders, they really did not care about Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. They really just cared what Jesus could do for them. The royal official, after the miracle, after he believed in the words of Jesus, him and his whole household continued to believe in Jesus' words and the fulfillment of Jesus' words. And this kind of faith is the very kind of faith that his disciples displayed in John 2.11. Look at John chapter 2, verse 11. It says this, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. They believed in him. They believed in his word. Now, let's stop here and, and talk about application here, because I think the story teaches us so much more than the events that's taking place in our text. I think there's two things we can look at. The first part we can look at is the character of Jesus that he displays and also the the kind of faith that Jesus desires. So let's first talk about the character of Jesus. If you're taking notes, here's our first application. We see in the story how Jesus is full of compassion and mercy. He's full of compassion and mercy. Notice how John kind of starts the story off. He starts the story off with coming to his own, Jesus coming to his own, and then Jesus declaring a prophet has no honor in his own country. 
and kind of alluding the fact that these Galileans had insincere faith. They really didn't believe in Jesus and who he is. They really just believed what, what he could possibly do for them. All they wanted was tricks, smoke and mirrors, signs and miracles. Perform a healing for us. Not really thinking about who Jesus actually is, trusting in him. And in a sense, this royal official doesn't really know anything about Jesus. All he knows about Jesus is word on the street. Jesus is a miracle worker. If you need something done, you need to go to Jesus. And so what does he do with an insincere faith, not really thinking about that Jesus could be God or from God. He, all he needs is his son to be healed. So in a sense, he, he approaches Jesus with selfish intentions and selfish motives. I need you to do this for me. Can you please do this for me? And in a sense, Jesus rebukes him. But Jesus is still full of compassion. He doesn't tell this man, you know what, buddy? I know you kind of people. All you care about is what I can do for you. And I'm going to heal your, your son. And what you're going to do, you're just going to leave me and not believe in me. Now, what does Jesus do? Even in this man's insincere faith, he sees his affliction. He sees his desperate need. He, he doesn't tell the man, hey, when, you, it's, when your belief really is lined up with what I really want, then you can come to me and then I'll heal you. I'll heal your son. But instead, in his pain and in his affliction, in his suffering, he meets the man where he is, even though his faith is insincere, even though he has no idea who Jesus is. Jesus sees his brokenness and shows him mercy and heals his son and i think this is applicable for us because even in our own lives jesus is compassionate and merciful like look at me here jesus knows your afflictions jesus knows your pain and your suffering jesus knows the sin that you're struggling with jesus knows the deepest darkest secret of yourself that nobody knows. He knows. And what does he do? He doesn't say, you know what? You need to get your act together. You need to fix those things. And once you fix those things, you can come to me. Now, what does he do? He draws near to you. He meets you where you are in life. He extends mercy and grace to you that is completely undeserving. He cares about your circumstances. He cares about your heart. He cares about the things that you're fearful of. He doesn't say, well, just stop it. He comes and he fulfills. He shows you how he is better. He is our great high priest that intercedes for us on our behalf, that meets us where we are, can sympathize in the time when we find ourselves struggling with doubt. And we see how Jesus is full of compassion. His arms are wide open, embracing us with his mercy and his grace and tenderly teaches us to believe in him and to continue to believe. We even see in chapter 5 how Jesus is compassionate to an invalid man who all he's doing is just griping about nobody loves him and cares about him, and he's a victim of his entire life. And what does Jesus do? The man didn't even ask to be healed. Jesus decides to heal him anyway. He's compassionate. He's merciful. He's gracious. 
and the God that revealed himself to Moses is the same God. For when Moses asked to see uh, the glory of the Lord, the Lord declared his name and had all of his goodness pass in front of Moses and said, I am loving, kind, I am gracious, I am compassionate, I am gentle, I am slow to anger. And even though I rightfully punish sin, I also forgive. This is the God that we worship. This is the God that meets us where we are in life. The, the second thing we can learn is the faith that he desires. If you're taking notes, the faith that he desires is this. The faith Jesus desires is the faith in who he is. The faith in who he is. Now, write in parentheses first, because I'm going to unpack it a little bit when we get to the table. The faith Jesus desires is the faith in who he is, parentheses, first. You see, Jesus pointed out the crowd's desire for signs and wonders. And in doing so, he really revealed their lack of true faith. They really didn't care about who Jesus is. They only cared about what Jesus can do for them. And Jesus says, in a sense, that faith is not going to endure. As long as you believe in what I can do for you, that faith is not going to endure. Why? Because let's say your faith is based on everything that Jesus can do for you. As long as Jesus does for you because you ask him, you're going to believe. But what's going to happen when he stops giving you what you think you need or what you ask him to do? Then you're going to stop believing. And Jesus says, that faith is not going to last. That faith is insincere. This is why he's rebuking the Galileans because the only reason they're believing is because of all the miracles and signs. And the second he stops doing miracles and signs, do you think they're going to continue to believe? No. And so uh, when it comes to us, like, like, like we, we must have faith in who he is, which begs us to ask some, 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 some really important questions. Do we care more about Jesus and what he can do for us and we'll believe in him as long as he answers our prayer, as long as he gives us everything we long for, as long as he gives us everything we've planned for? Or do we believe in him and who he is? Do we care more about what he can do for us than we care about him? Will we continue to believe when he does not answer our prayers, when he does not give us what we want? Will we still believe in him when we lose everything in life? That's the kind of faith that Jesus desires. Now, now I know to be quite honest, like, like if we think about these questions, like if we have to be really honest, we're kind of setting ourselves up to fail because I don't think any of us with true honesty can say, oh yes, amen, that's me. And I think the reason why we can't always answer that question with confidence and integrity and honesty is because at times we don't see the value of Christ. We don't see him for who he is. Because our relationship with him is more structured on what he can do for us or what we need him to do for us rather than just simply beholding him and looking to him. We get so bogged down and distracted by the worries of this world that we take our eyes off of Christ. 
This is why the author of Hebrews says, since we've been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off all these things that are entangling us and let our fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, so we can run the race with endurance. And that's just, uh, that, that, that's not the exact quote, okay? So don't look it up, but that's in a sense what he is saying, like fix your eyes on Christ. Run the race with endurance. This is the faith that the Lord desires, a faith that is rooted in who he is first and not just what he can do for you. And I think it's interesting that in our passage, how many times did the royal official, does it say that the royal official believed in him? Twice. It believed in him first, the words of Jesus, and after Jesus performed the miracle and healed his son, and he put two and two together, what does it say? It be, he believed in Jesus, him and his whole household. And, and here's, I think, the significant uh, truth it points to, that, that faith is more than just simply something that happens at conversion. It's more than just for the first time accepting Jesus, but it's in every single day, every single moment in the Christian life where we're continuing to believe in who he is. As we find ourselves overwhelmed by the worries of this world, as we find ourselves struggling in sin, as we read his word, and we sometimes feel like our flesh is in conflict with his word, this is why we struggle with obedience. It's because when we read the word of God and we know it is true, why do we struggle obeying the word of God? Because deep down inside, there is unbelief rooted in our hearts because we're looking at the word and we're saying, yeah, I don't think that's good. I don't think that's what he meant. I think there's a better way and I know that better way. And really what at its core, not only is it a rebellious heart, but it's also a heart rooted in unbelief, believing that we believe that God is not good. And what he gives us and the commands he gives us is not for our good, does not have our best interest in mind. This is why we sometimes struggle with obeying his word. And what does the Christian have to do in it? Just to continue to believe, to continue to trust, even when we can't see it, knowing he is good and he loves me and he cares for me and all his commands are for my benefit, even when it seems painful and I cannot see it right now. It is a daily trusting, a daily clinging. It's a believing in who he is first. You see, faith chooses to trust him when life does not turn out as we thought it should. Faith chooses to trust him when the answer does not make any sense to us. Faith chooses to trust him instead of our own plans. And it's every day. Believing, I know the Lord is good. I know the Lord loves me. I know that what he says about himself is true. I know that what he says about me is true. I know that he cares about me. And the commands he gives me, even though it seems painful at first, is for my good and for his glory. So I am choosing to trust him in this. Does it make any sense why am I doing it? No. Does everybody else say I'm foolish? Probably. But my faith is rooted in who he is. And who is he? He's God. He's the author and the perfecter of everything. He's the creator and the sustainer of life. I can trust him and choose him and rest in him.
let me pr- let's before we pray and get to the table let's reflect on a couple questions and then we'll pray and then we get to the table i want you to think about this like and and, and be honest don't just try to answer it but when you reflect your own life do you care more about who he is than what he can do for you like, like, really think about it. Do you, or, or another way of saying it, maybe I said it wrong, do you care more about what Jesus can do for you than who he is? Like, another way of looking at it is, will you still believe in him if you don't get anything that you ask for? Or will you still believe in him if you lose everything in this life? And again, I know this question is setting us up all to fail, even myself, because I'm going to say, well, no. But the reason I'm asking you to ask this question is not to judge you, condemn you, or to show you how short your fall, but to help you realize that we need to constantly get distracted and look away from Christ. And I think the reason why we can't say yes to those questions is because we don't see the value in Christ. And so the reason I'm asking you these questions is so that you can see that you need to see more value in Christ. Reorient your heart, your mind, look to Him. And so think about those questions. And really meditate on it. Will you still believe in Jesus if you lose everything? Do you care more about what He can do for you than who He is? And then another question when it comes to to, to the faith that he desires. Like what area in your life are you struggling with unbelief? Do you really have a hard time to believe Jesus in? And again, that's a question that kind of sets you up to fail because all of us have that area. I can trust him with this, with that. I can't trust him with that. And the reason why I'm giving you this question is again not to judge you or condemn you look down on you but in a sense like the lord knows the area that you're not trusting him in ask that question ask the lord to help you help me to continue to trust in this area help me to have a right perspective of you help me to look to you press into you rest in you trust in you so let let me pray but let's take a moment and reflect on those questions Holy Father, you know us. You know more about us than we know about ourselves. Lord, you know whether our faith is sincere. You know what we desire. You know whether we care more about what you can do for us than about you. You know those areas that we Lack and faith trusting you. Lord, can you help us in that area? Can you help us to behold you and look to you? Can you help us to be in awe of you? those areas in our life that we have a hard time trusting you, can you help us to surrender? 
can you help us to believe in who you are and not just in what you can do? As we're praying, just reflect on those questions with the good news that the Lord knows everything about you and yet he's still compassionate and merciful. Ask the Lord to help you. Ask the Lord to make himself known so you can see him, behold him, be in awe of him. Ask the Lord to help you to surrender certain areas of your life that you have a hard time to trust in. As we get ready to sit at the table, one of the truths we learned that sincere faith is really rooted in who he is first and not just in what he can do for us. And I said I'm going to try to connect the two. If you think about the table, what's on this table? It is the display of what Jesus has done for us. And if your faith is only rooted in what he's done for you and not who he is first, then how do you know what he's done for you is enough? See, if your faith is not rooted in who he is first, but it's only rooted in what he's done for you, in the back of your mind there is a question of, is this sufficient? Is this enough? So let's say, for example, you have no idea who this person is. You just know what he's done for you. He could be a good man. He could be a prophet. You have no idea. Well, how do you know this is enough? How do you know that, 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 that it is enough that Jesus died in your place? He took on your penalty, your sin, paid for your debt, satisfied God's wrath on your behalf so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you and all of your imperfections and all of your sin, but rather he sees you perfect because of the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed on you. Because of what Christ has done, there's this exchange, your unrighteousness for his righteousness and his righteousness for your unrighteousness. And if your faith is not rooted in who he is, how do you know that when you stand before God, that God will accept you and see you as righteous? The answer is you won't. And which means is now you're going to have to participate in this table, but then also supplement it because there's doubt. But if you believe in Jesus and who he is first, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world, the Creator, the Author, the Perfector, the Sustainer of all things, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the solid rock on which we stand. Because our faith is rooted in who He is first, now we can have a confidence in that what He's done for us is sufficient. We don't need to supplement this table with anything. 
We can come and sit and eat and drink believing that what he's done for us is enough because of who he is. And this is how we see those two things come together. And so as we distribute these elements, I I want you to meditate on who Jesus is. Look to him. Trust in him. Surrender to him. Ask the Lord to help you to behold him and to be in awe of him as you run this race. When Jesus died for us, by his death he revealed his glory. And when he was raised from the dead, God the Father gave him glory. He received glory. He is exalted above everything. For there's no other name other than the name of Jesus by which we are saved. And so as we think about this body and this blood, we think about who it belongs to. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the lion and the lamb. His body broken for us. Eat it in remembrance of him. It is his blood that was shed for us. The new covenant we have, we drink it in remembrance of him. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the salvation you have initiated in sending your Son. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the salvation you've accomplished for us by dying on the cross in our place. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the salvation you've applied, that you've taken our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. You've made us new. You've indwelt us, transformed us, have sealed us, and right now you're renewing us. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to look to you, help us to fix our eyes on you. Help us in sincere faith to believe in who you are and not just in what you can do for us. Help us to desire you more than anything this world has to offer. Help us to see that you're the only one that satisfies and fulfills. We love you and we praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand. Let us worship.